Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the Past Lives Podcast, episode 206, and I'm your host, Simon Bowne. My mission here at the Past Lives Podcast is to investigate evidence that demonstrates survival of the human soul. We will look at past life memories, near-death experiences, spirit communication and other incredible phenomena. This is the free one-hour version of the episode. The extended episode is an hour and 17 minutes. And to get access to the extra 17 minutes and to the other extended versions of the episodes, you can join the Past Lives Podcast Patreon campaign. When you sign up for $5 a month, you get an extended episode every week. For $2 a month, you get an extended episode every month. And please check out my other podcast. It's called the Alien UFO Podcast, and I release new episodes every Monday. And you can find it on almost every podcast app. And there's also a new $12.50 Patreon tier, where every week you can get the extended episodes of the Past Lives Podcast and the Alien UFO Podcast extended episodes. And there are now 50 extended episodes available to the $5 patrons. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash pastlivespodcast or click on the Patreon button on my homepage at pastlivesypnosis.co.uk And when you book a past life regression hypnosis session with me and you're a patron, you'll get a 25% discount. I'm offering a free consultation call which can be booked on my website. And look out for the Past Lives Podcast episodes called Paranormal Stories and they are released every Thursday. The links are in the show notes. And you can find the show notes for this and every other episode on my website. And if you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or via your favourite podcast app to make sure that you don't miss out on any episodes. So this week I'm talking to Gregory Shushan, PhD, about his book, The Next World, Extraordinary Experiences of the Afterlife. Gregory is a leading authority on near-death experiences and the afterlife across cultures throughout history. He is a research fellow of the Parapsychology Foundation and was formerly Perrett Warwick Researcher at University of Oxford's Ian Ramsey Centre for Science and Religion. Scholar in residence at the Centro Incontri Umani, which is the Cross-Cultural Centre, Ascona in Switzerland, and Honorary Research Fellow at the Religious Experience Research Centre, University of Wales, Trinity St. David. He has lectured at universities in the UK, Ireland and Switzerland and has given numerous talks on his research in nine countries and has appeared on the History Channel. Dr. Gregory Shushan holds degrees in Religious Studies, Research Methods for the Humanities, Egyptian Archaeology and Eastern Mediterranean Archaeology. 
He first appeared on this podcast where he talked about his book Near-Death Experience in Indigenous Religions. Hi Greg, thanks a lot for coming back to the podcast. Well, thank you Simon, it's my pleasure. You've got this great book out, it's called The Next World, Extraordinary Experiences of the Afterlife. So could you give us a, like an overview of the book? Sure, yeah. Um, this one, um, I mean, last time I talked about, um, you know, near-death experience in indigenous religions in the ancient world and my previous research. And this book, um, it does summarize some of that because, um, you know, my first two books were very uh, academic in nature and, and priced accordingly. So they were kind of out of reach of a lot of people. So I thought, um, you know, giving some of that background in this book it, it would, would be a good idea. So I've done that. I've done sort of one case study of uh, near-death experiences in, in the Pacific world and then um, in small-scale societies and how they relate to shamanism and different kinds of um, afterlife and funerary rituals and that sort of thing. Um, and then just a kind of summary of my, my first book as well, um, which compared afterlife beliefs in ancient civilizations around the world and then looked at them in the context of uh, near-death experiences. Uh, but really the main, that was just sort of to give background, but the main thrust of the book really is um, not only in, in near-death experiences do we have all of these descriptions of the afterlife, but in reincarnation cases, we also have them. Uh, for example, in um, intermission memory, memories when children claim to have remembered past lives, and they sometimes also remember uh, the state between their previous life and their new life. And, and sometimes we'll even uh, claim to have remembered the, the death of their former personality. So, um, and the interesting thing is, is so the, the, the child will um, explain how, you know, when I was, um, you know, Joe Bloggs in my previous life and I died, I remembered I was, you know, hit by a truck and I left my body and I saw my body lying there and my family was around me and went to another world and met a being of light and de deceased relatives and whatever. And then um, I ended up coming into this body, into this new personality. So um, those intermission memory descriptions are very similar to uh, what, you know, near-death experiencers tell us about the afterlife. So, so that's, um, that's very interesting. Um, and then, so I compared near-death experiences in general um, to these re reincarnation intermission memories uh, in one chapter. And then another chapter deals with uh, mediumship. So um, this is why the subtitle of the book is uh, Extraordinary Experiences of the Afterlife. I wanted to kind of bring in all the different, um, well, variety of the different kinds of um, afterlife experiences that, that people have rather than focusing just on, on NDEs. Um, but NDEs sort of provided the baseline because um, partly because I think they're um, probably the best evidence for an afterlife that that we have out there i think they're the most convincing um, the reincarnation stuff is also pretty compelling um, but also because there are so many accounts from around the world and it's such an interesting phenomena to me um, with the uh, cross-cultural similarities and differences and all that so i guess the genesis really was um started with the nde research and thinking if there are all these people all around the world throughout history and all different cultures having near-death experiences and they have similarities, but they're also actually very different from each other. Uh, what can that actually tell us about what an objective real afterlife could possibly be like? So um, 
that was the point of of the book really and it's also the point of comparing them with um the reincarnation stuff and the mediumship stuff with near-death experiences you have those veridical ones where people will see something while apparently they're, they're brain dead and they have this memory of something that happened and it's later confirmed and mm -hmm. so that's very good evidence that their consciousness was still operating when their brain was dead. Right. And we can verify what they've seen, but this whole thing of the afterlife, we can't verify that. But I suppose since the initial verification works, that's, it lends weight to what they say about the afterlife space. Yeah. I mean, they, they definitely experienced something and, uh, and yeah, there've been, um, you know, there was the aware study uh, with uh, that Sam Parnia did, and they were actually able to pinpoint the moment when uh, an NDE was um, actually having the experience that he described, because he he was able to describe something that happened um, in the hospital room where he was, um, and they were they had a you know a time signature basically of when that event happened, and when it happened he was you know to all intents and purposes clinically dead. So. Um, and then there's these new studies coming out that that um, a recent one saying that um, you know the brain activity there's a burst of brain activity um, shortly after death you know death in quotes really because they need to keep sort of redefining um, the term death um, at some point they might might even make it um, irrelevant you know they might they might have to to start saying um, death of the physical body rather than just death full stop. Um, so yeah, there's there's lots of interesting evidence going on there, but you're right. You, we can't. Um, the only actual evidence we have of what these people are experiencing is what they tell us they experienced once they you know come back to life, as it were. And you're saying in the book that uh, there are experiments in neuroscience that seem to show we're hardwired to believe in an afterlife. And is that something skeptics can sort of grab onto and say, you see, that's what near-death experiences really are. It's just something in the brain. Yeah, they could, but it, it wouldn't make sense. Um, the experiments that I was referring to there are mostly um, Jesse Baring, who's a um, cognitive scientist. And um, he did some really interesting research. Um, for example, he showed that you know, he would ask very young children, um, tell them a story about, um, I can't remember the details, but it was like, a cartoon character lizard died or something like that. And they said, where is he now? And these children didn't, none of them said, um, well, he's dead. He's, he doesn't exist. He's in the ground. They said things like, um, oh, well, he's up in the sky or he's, you know, whatever conception they had of death at a very early age, he's, he's with his lizard friends or his lizard mummy or whatever. So, um, and there were a few others that, that just showed that, um, children just they it's not that they don't accept death because they're too afraid or whatever it's just that that's not the concept the concept is well of course people are going to keep living after they don't have bodies anymore it's just kind of a it's taken for granted so so yeah they, they could extend that and say well um you know near-death experience and all these other types of experiences and beliefs it's just wishful thinking or whatever but um the i think for one thing that how specific ndes are um you know, they have a very um, a sort of basic repertoire of sub-experiences that they're composed of. So, you know, um, leaving the body and seeing a being of light, traveling through darkness, meeting deceased relatives, all those sorts of things. Um, they're expressed very differently in different, different cultures, um, but they happen in, you know, in the majority of, of NDEs. 
So that's not really um, going to be a, a product of wishful thinking, especially when they happen to atheists or when they happen to people who don't believe in the types of experiences or the type of afterlife that NDEs seem to indicate. Um, so yeah, that's, so I don't think that, that they can fully explain it. And aside from the fact that, um, you know, they're spontaneous, it's not like people deliberately have NDEs and loads of people who've never heard of NDEs obviously have them and, and report um, experiences that are similar to those who, who might have religious beliefs of, of an afterlife. Would you say your book is kind of just analyzing the information? It's not like you're trying to prove there's an afterlife. You're just saying, this is the information. This is what I think of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and to some extent, the, the cross-cultural stuff can be used to support kind of either side. So, so the, um, you know, the all-in-the-brain type scientists can say, um, well, of course, NDEs are going to be the same everywhere because it's just the dying brain and the brain behaves simil similar ways um, when it's biologically compromised or, or whatever. Um, and then, you know, people who, who believe that NDEs are actual indications of an afterlife, they can say, well, no, they're all the same because um, they prove that there's really an afterlife. Um, to me, both of those are, are really problematic because again, neither of them take into account the cross-cultural differences between NDEs. So, um, you know, if, if you're saying NDEs are all the same and therefore it's just a dying brain, um, first of all, even in Western societies, NDEs are not all the same. So that's why when they say things like, oh, it's um, caused by the anesthetics that the anesthesia that they were under during an operation or um, too much oxygen in the brain or not enough oxygen in the brain or um, reviving from, from the near-death state. Um, there's all these biological factors that they keep trying to use to explain NDEs, and none of them work because of the cross-cultural differences, if you see what I mean, and, and even because of the, um, the, the differences within a certain society. So not everybody sees a being of light, and not everybody sees a tunnel or whatever. So um, we don't know why, you know, why, why they're so different yet. Um, but that difference, I think, is just as important as the similarities. So, and, and then also with, um, you know, people who, who want to use NDEs as, or, or see them as proof of an afterlife, it's, it's the same kind of problem that you run into, which is, um, you know, people like uh, Keith Augustine brought this up in a, in a um, debate in Journal of Near-Death Studies about, um, you know, his, his argument was because of the fact that near-death experiences are, are so different across cultures, that shows that they can't be real because one would expect the afterlife to be the same for everyone. Um, to me, that's, um, I know a lot of people feel that way. And I know a lot of people who believe in NDEs want to believe that they want to believe like, you know, we're all going to go to the same place in this afterlife realm of, of heaven is real and all that. Um, but I don't see any problem with thinking that the afterlife is actually different for different kinds of people and people with different beliefs and possibly depending on the kind of experience you had or um, the length of the NDE or the level of your development in one way or another. So um, yeah, just the, the, that that's one way that I think the differences and the similarities can kind of be reconciled. If we can accept that maybe there, there is just diverse afterlife experiences depending on the individual.
Yeah, it seems to be something where the world or the the place where you go during a near-death experience is built out of your own consciousness. And that um, it's almost, I think you kind of say this about the afterlife space as well, that it's depending on your view, that's how it's built. And I, I wonder if that's something where that's why it's so different, but also after spending an amount of time in the afterlife, you would start to lose those foundations of your subconscious effect on the, the landscape around you. Right. Yeah. Possibly that, um, the, um, the illusions that your mind creates or the, the way I look at it is like your, your mind or your subconscious or whatever is kind of clothing these objective experiences in, in imagery and symbols that, um, that are familiar to you that you can understand. Um, and this is kind of reflected in um, Tibetan Buddhism and other forms of, of Buddhism um, that you're, you're kind of uh, creating this, this afterlife. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not also objective if, if you're, everyone's perceiving the same type of thing in a similar way. So, you know, if you go to the, the spirit village or whatever, um, you know, a, a Native American tribe might see a person having an NDE or a person who's dead might see that as, you know, a, a village of um, adobe huts or teepees or or whatever um, with horses and people in the kind of clothes that they're used to. Whereas, you know, a, um, you know, an Edwardian gentleman might have seen uh, an idealized mirror image of England. So it just all depends, I think, on... Um, what your cultural background and expectations are, um, you know, those things will, I think, dictate the nature of the experience. Um, just going back to NDEs, but um, they don't dictate the fact that you're going to have an NDE or not. It's just how the way in which you're going to experience it. So if we kind of extrapolate and think, um, if, if we kind of extend that into an actual afterlife realm, then that's kind of, to me, how things would make sense as, as far as the similarities and the differences are concerned. I wonder if the children that we're talking about there being an afterlife, as you were describing earlier, is there some kind of uh, residual memory from before they were born, you know, that reincarnation sort of thing? Because there's so many children who remember past lives. I wonder if children still have that connection. Yeah, some of them. You, you mean ones who haven't been re or who don't remember reincarnations? Yeah. Maybe it's just some kind of residual background memory. Yeah, that would be an interesting follow-up to, to Jesse Baring's test. Not not just like, you know, where did um, where did the dead cartoon character lizard go? But um, you know, can you describe the place or something like that? That that would be an interesting project. But um, yeah, I don't know if that's that's been done. Uh, but the fact that these uh, children who remember the the intermission, uh, intermission states, um, which is, I think about 20 or 30% is, is the figure. Um, you know, the fact that they're really remarkably similar to NDEs, I think is, is very significant. But of course, you know, as with NDEs, uh, they often don't describe what, you know, the actual other world is like. They describe the, the process of, of dying and, and then being reborn, but not necessarily, you know, features in the other world. Hello listeners, this is Simon. Now some of you know I have a diploma in clinical hypnotherapy and I'm certified in past life regression therapy. And in the past few weeks I've taken many clients through some amazing 
and healing past life regressions. And I conduct sessions over Zoom, and I've had clients from many countries around the world. Now when you go through a past life regression, you will feel totally in control and remember everything. And also I record the whole session and send you an MP3 afterwards. And this gives you space to relax and go with the flow, knowing that you can listen back later and analyse what you experienced if you need to. So if you ever wanted to explore your past lives in a single session, or have an issue you want to work on, you can go to my website at pastlifeshypnosis.co.uk and book a free 20-minute consultation. And at the moment, I'm offering a 25% discount to everyone that has signed up to the Patreon campaign. The link is in the show notes. The other book we talked about when you were on the podcast before was about near-death experiences in indigenous religions. Mm-hmm. And so do you feel that it's possible that NDEs kind of laid the foundations of religion? That's where the idea of heaven and hell come from. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good possibility. Um, I mean, I, I think uh, not only is it a possibility, but in some religions or some traditions, um, it's, it's basically fact. And the only way to, to argue that it's not fact is to essentially deny the claims of what the people in those traditions have actually told us, have told anthropologists and explorers and missionaries. So um, in that book, I found, you know, dozens, I think in, in just uh, North America alone in Native American cultures, something like 30 examples of, um, you know, they were asked, what is your afterlife like? And they would describe it. And then they would say, well, how do you know this? And they'd say, well, on this, in this particular year, this particular person, you know, an actual historical person, he died and he went to the other world and he experienced these things and he came back and told us, and this is how we know about the afterlife. So, I mean, it's a very, it's like a microcosm, these cases, they're microcosms of um, what they call the experiential source hypothesis is basically that uh, religious beliefs lie in these kinds of extraordinary experiences. So um, there's a lot of pushback against that in academic study of religions, for example, which is the field that I, that I come from, uh, because the, the sort of default paradigm there is that all experience, all belief, um, any kind of religious phenomena is not just grounded in culture, but culturally created. So, so they want us to think essentially that, you know, they're, if there is such a thing as, an, as a near-death experience, it's only because um, it pre-existed in that culture. It's part of their religious tradition and therefore people have it. But in fact, near-death experiences completely blow that idea out of the water. Um, so do out-of-body experiences because they're very you know, specific types of experiences um, identified with a very, you know, they come from a, a very particular context. They're, you, you die or you're temporarily dead and you leave your body and you come back. So there's no real debate about, um, you know, that being a, a kind of experience that's culturally generated because they happen in cultures that, um, you know, have, have beliefs that are totally antithetical to near-death experiences. So um, in, the, in the new book, for example, um, I talk about case studies from Australia and also in Micronesia. They had, um, I couldn't find any near-death experiences from Micronesia um, and this is paralleled also in some African cultures in, in the earlier book that uh, basically their, their religious traditions didn't allow for near-death experiences to be, you know, valorized and seen as this um, source of 
beneficial knowledge. Instead, their, their attitude was more like rising from the dead is a threat. Um, the person who rose from the dead must be some kind of um, victim of sorcery or a zombie or some kind of, you know, malevolent threat to the nat national order, to the community. So um, therefore, <laughs> we, we either when that person comes back to life, we need to prevent them from, you know, wreaking havoc in the community. So they would stone them or they would kill them again or whatever they needed to do to put down that perceived threat. Um, and in fact, sometimes they would often, um, in their funerary, funerary rituals, they would um, bind the corpse, um, hands and feet, to make sure that they didn't rise from the dead if they woke up or put, you know, pile stones on top of them. You know, these like preventative measures so people couldn't come back and, and report NDEs. So, um, so that's interesting because it, on the one hand, it explains why there are so few NDEs reported in particular societies that have those kinds of beliefs. Um, but it's also interesting because there's some that always slip through. So once in a while, we will get an example of an NDE of somebody who, um, you know, despite these precautions, came back to life and, um, and told of their experiences in another world. So that, that in itself proves that it's a cross-cultural thing. But the way cultures accept them or reject them is, is obviously very specific in, in different societies. And you talk about the shamanic journey, so to speak, the initiation, where it's almost like they force a near-death experience. Right, yeah. And um, a lot of the, um, I mean, there's various different kinds of shamanism in, in different cultures. So just to be specific about the one we're talking about, it's really when um, a shaman goes on another world journey deliberately, uh, leaves the body and travels to realms of the dead, or sometimes to, you know, different kinds of realms that aren't necessarily um, of the afterlife. This is often when um, somebody else in the community has died or is in danger of dying. And the belief is that their soul has left the body and that they're on their way to the other world. So in order to bring them back, they send the shaman after them to, to, you know, bring them back. This is called soul retrieval in the, in the literature. So um, in order to, to get into that state of being able to leave the body and go retrieve the soul of, of your friend, um, they would, you know, do it through various means. Sometimes it was more benevolent things like, um, you know, repetitive drumming and chanting until you fall into a trance state um, or dancing until you collapse. And, you know, these kinds of things, um, when the seed is planted, that that's what you're going to do, that, that the, the point of this exercise is to leave your body and, and go retrieve the soul, then, um, you know, that's obviously a, um, a, a culturally generated experience. And, and it reminds me of um, in ancient Greece, they would have dream incubation where you would go into the, a dreaming temple and you would lie down and fall asleep um, in order to, specifically in order to have a dream about a particular uh, event or circumstance or question in your life. And then the uh, dream gods would, you know, send you a dream that would be healing or informative in some way. So in some ways, shamanism was like that, you know, they're, they're planning on having this kind of experience and then they bring it about through, through these particular means. Uh, but yes, yeah, sometimes those means are, are more um, likely to bring about an actual near-death experience. So example, for example, they would, you know, there's references to being clubbed to death. Um, so presumably that means, you know, clubbed to insensibility and apparent death. 
Um, and then other cases, they would say burn to death, which, um, you know, that one is, is a bit more difficult to, to figure out what they meant. Um, it could mean burnt to death, like within the shamanic realm, um, but it's, it's kind of hard to say. And I'm sure some of the drugs, too. There, there was a um, drug in uh, among the Fang people in Africa called um, Ibogaine, which is related to the, the deity Iboga. And they would take su such massive quantities of this stuff that it would effectively um, temporarily kill them and, um, and cause an NDE. So not only is it an NDE through death, but it's an NDE um, colored by, you know, the very intense presumably psychedelic drug experiences kind of overlaid on that. And the people that went through those experiences though, who were sort of died because they took that stuff and came back and they became the shamans, would they be thought of as uh, very wise individuals, people you would go to for advice? Yeah, sometimes they would. Um, it's interesting in Australia, there were, very few actual NDEs that I could find. This is among, you know, Aboriginal people there. Um, but quite a lot of near-death experience type narratives that happened to shamans. And I think the, the distinction there was that by virtue of having had that experience, this person is a shaman. So basically um, exactly what you said. But um, in other cultures and a lot of the Native American examples like um, the ghost dance religion is, is a very famous one. Um, a lot of people have heard that term ghost dance religion or whatever. Um, but most, a lot of people don't know that it's um, actually was rooted in the near death experience of its founder and then kind of um, replicated later by NDEs and by these kinds of deliberate practices um, from uh, other people later on. So you, your chapter you have there in the book is called Shamanism and the Near-Death Experiences in the Indigenous Traditions of, is it Oceana? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So why did you have a chapter that focused on Oceana? And what does it tell us that we're seeing all those near-death experiences there? Yeah, I thought that was a good um, example um, for the book because it was very, on the one hand, um, certain areas like Polynesia and Melanesia were very similar to the Native American examples where there were so many NDEs and they were very open to them and, and so many examples of them saying, you know, these um, influenced our afterlife beliefs or they're the source of our afterlife beliefs. Um, but then I was able to contrast that with Micronesia and Australia because that was more like the, the African sort of cases. Um, I mean, that's generalizing quite a bit because there's a lot of um, differences, not only in every particular society, but also within the regions. Um, so, um, for example, there, there were um, cases that in Africa where, um, like the Zulu people, for example, they had examples of near-death experiences, and they had an afterlife belief that was very much like NDEs, and they had shamanistic practices that were very much like NDEs. Um, and this whole sort of complex of belief and experience and practice um, seemed to come in a package where in other parts of Africa, it was like, they don't have near-death experience reports. They don't have um, uh, myths that reflect NDEs and they don't have beliefs that reflect NDEs. So that was again, more like um, the case in Australia where that was more about um, all this sort of afterlife journey activity had to do with shamanism. 
Um, in Micronesia, it was it was even more of, of the sort of um, you know quite strict attitude towards NDEs. It seemed um, with the burial practices that were you know, restrictive of the practices and all that of, of the um, experience actually being able to happen. Um, but in Polynesia, you know, it, it was very much like the Native American case. And in Melanesia, it was also interesting because um, they had a lot of examples of NDEs and they fully embraced them, but they also um, embraced pretty much any other kind of afterlife belief. So they, they had, um, you know, issues with people coming back to the dead and being malevolent sort of, um, you know, threats to the society in particular cultures. But then another one next door would, would um, you know, be practicing afterlife journey NDE type experiences and founding religions on them. So it was, it was almost a sort of free for all in Melanesia. They seem to be really open to, to all this kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, for, as far as what it can tell us about NDEs, I think it's um, for one thing that again, they, they happen all around the world. Um, and this is, you know, throughout history, the, the earliest native American one I found was um, 1589, I think something like that. Um, and the latest I went to for, for that study was like um, uh, 1940s or 50s. And that's the same with the, um, the ones in the new book with the, the Pacific stuff. It's, it's yeah, basically going up to the, to the 40s or 50s. So um, yeah, not only are they having NDEs around the world, but we can see similarities and differences between all of them. And we can see uh, the different ways in which people integrate them into their belief systems, essentially. But on top of that, as far as like the question of, you know, what is an afterlife? What, what, what would the afterlife actually be like? Um, if you're reading these accounts from all over the world and from all these different societies in the Pacific, um, for example, you've got, you know, 20 or 30 from Polynesia, including Hawaii and New Zealand. And then you've got a bunch from Melanesia and seeing all the differences between them, but at the same time, um, having to accept that they were real in the sense that they really happened to real people. Again, what do we make of the differences and what do we make of the similarities and how can we possibly say uh, there's really an afterlife if it's so different for all these people in all these different cultures? And I suppose seeing all these near-death experiences from such a long time ago and around the world, that kills that argument that skeptics might have that people only report them because it's in popular culture. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you know, that argument still strangely goes on when, when you occasionally read um, something online. There was, there was one not long ago by uh, Sam Harris, who was, you know, making these grand statements about historical NDEs as, as if they don't exist. Um, or he, he said something like um, people in North India shouldn't have different NDEs from people in South India. That's like, oh, really? Do you know anything about the cultural diversity of India? So, um, yeah, it's um, people still are not sure whether this is a culturally generated thing. And a lot of a lot of people who haven't done the reading, haven't done the, the research, still think that it's this, you know, Christian ideal of, of um, you know, this sort of I saw heaven sort of thing. And they don't understand that um, it's been going on for, for a really long time. But you know, to be fair, before before my research, um, there wasn't really a, there weren't that really that many cross cultural examples known. There were the same few ones were sort of given as examples in all the literature. There were like 
you know, maybe eight or 10 from small scale societies and a few from 19th century and a couple of ones from ancient Rome. Um, so it was really difficult to get a picture of, of what was really going on. Um, there were a lot from medieval Europe, but the interesting thing about that is um, Carol Zaleski, who, who was um, the first person who sort of brought the medieval NDEs into the popular imagination, um, she, she made this comparison with medieval NDEs and, and modern NDEs and basically concluded that um, because they weren't similar enough that they're basically uh, the product of the religious imagination, that, that they weren't, um, you know, that they were culturally generated rather than being an objective experience. And, and she's a little, yeah, it's a, it's a little difficult, difficult to puzzle out exactly where she was going in the first book, especially because later she, she kind of changed a few things. But essentially she was saying um, that the medieval in, uh, examples of other world journeys were basically literary constructs and they were, they were part of a literary tradition. And so they can't really be compared um, in, a, in a positive way with contemporary NDEs, which are, you know, not so much part of the same literary tradition. Whereas to my way of thinking that um, those medieval examples, you know, they describe a person having died, left their body, traveling to another world, um, going through darkness, coming out into light, meeting a being of light, all these typical elements are there. Um, it's true that there are, you know, loads and loads of descriptions on top of that. Um, they're obviously embellished with a lot of, you know, um, mythological and literary tropes, uh, but that doesn't mean that they weren't grounded in, you know, some particular um, original NDE, especially because they were happening to, you know, actual historical people. So what the, um, either the person who had the NDE or the church, what they do with the narrative afterwards is, is very different from what, you know, the actual experience was, but nevertheless, it shows that people were we're having these experiences in medieval times. You also look into mediumship and you talk about Victorian and Edwardian mediumship. So why did you choose to go that far back in time to look at this and not just look at contemporary mediumship? Um, partly because um, contemporary mediumship, all the mediums and, and all of the sitters and pretty much everybody um, who's interested in this subject knows about near-death experiences. So that already is, is kind of a, um, you know, a contamination, if you will, of, of the data. So um, if you want to compare mediumship accounts of the afterlife with NDE accounts of the afterlife, then you should, shouldn't be asking people who, who you know or, or suspect are, are going to know a lot about NDEs. Um, so in Victorian and Edwardian um, eras, um, near-death experiences were, were not very well known. They weren't really, they weren't named near-death experience until 1975 with um, Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life. Uh, that's when they sort of became, um, you know, flooded our, our popular imagination. Uh, but before that, um, there were a couple books here and there, and there were, you know, stray accounts here and there, but they weren't widely known. And the Victorian era is interesting because they focused so specifically on uh, mediumship because, you know, the, the Society for Psychical Research and organizations like that were so focused on obtaining, you know, good evidence, scientific evidence of an afterlife. And they thought that the, the best way to do that, the most promising um, 
you know, branch of evidence for that was, was mediumship. So um, again, there are a few examples here and there. There's a, a Frederick Myers article where he, he mentions a couple of NDEs, but the interesting thing is he doesn't, he's not really that interested in, in them as NDEs. He's interested in them as the uh, phantasm of the person, as he would call it, obtaining information that's still going on on, um, on earth. So it was more of a sort of, um, you know, the, the out-of-body experience and uh, getting veridical information, getting evidence that that experience actually happened. But as far as the NDE being a phenomena, it was like, it's, it's interesting because you see all these uh, you know, stray accounts here and there, but nobody's putting them together. Nobody's saying, okay, this is a, a particular um, experience type that, that we should name and study. And it's interesting to speculate if they had done that, you know, what different direction psychical research might have taken in, in that era. Um, but anyway, so looking at the um, mediumship evidence, what I wanted to do, um, another reason I chose that era, by the way, is because I think it probably has the best evidence um, for mediumship, the, the most, um, you know, the, the strictest types of, of protocols and the, you know, finest minds in science of the time were involved in these experiments, some of the fine, finest minds. Um, you know, Oliver Lodge was a physicist and William James, famous psychologist. Um, E.R. Dodds was a, you know, super skeptical classicist and Frederick Myers and all these people, um, you know, it's not like just because they're studying mediumship in the afterlife, suddenly their credentials go out the window. So we have to lend some credence to their critical thinking um, capacity and their skepticism and all that. And, um, and a lot of them were very swayed by the evidence of the mediumship. So I thought um, rather than just looking at random mediums or whatever, I've, I chose the, the ones that were, um, that gave the most credible um, evidential sittings. So Leonora Piper, for example, um, Geraldine Cummings and a few others. And I wanted to see if the information that they communicated or that, that was communicated through them rather about the afterlife, um, how that compares with NDEs. So um, on the one hand, they compare, compared very favorably and we have all the, the typical you know, NDE features, the, you know, they, I keep mentioning the leaving the body, going to another realm, deceased relatives, the spirit being of light, all this sort, sort of thing. Um, but more like the medieval examples, actually, um, there are all these cultural accretions, um, plots and stories and, and, you know, sort of almost science fictional or fantasy descriptions of other worlds. Um, and then also very uh, parochial, sort of narrow, narrow-minded visions of what the other world was like. So, um, for example, in a few of these sources, they say there's seven levels of the afterlife. Um, Earth is on the level below, and the next level above is, you know, the plane of illusion. Each one has a, has a kind of different plane of of whatever. Um, all these very systematic um, kind of descriptions. So the first is is the sort of semi-rarefied plane where um, England of the time was duplicated in a, in a more idealized way. And then above that, England was duplicated again in a more, even more idealized way. And so the descriptions go up to seven layers of, of heavenly Englands and the heaven, the most heavenly one is at the top. So this is not something we come across in NDEs at all. 
um, these very systematic, um, almost bureaucratic afterlives um, that they describe. They're also, you know, they say there are libraries and there's um, everyone goes and has an education and learns about their spirit and you could go and study music and Shakespeare is writing even better plays and Oscar Wilde is living a life of delicious sin. You know, all these very kind of, for, to our, our eyes, um, very corny kind of experiences. So again, we need to reconcile like, why are all those descriptions similar to NDEs on the one hand, but then why is there all this other, you know, sort of junk <laughs> on the other hand? Uh, and, and I'm not saying that in a, in a way to be um, offensive to our, our forebears, but, you know, I'm talking about things like there are salamander flame beings living on the sun. That was one of the claims through, through one of these mediums. And so most people are not going to accept that. And, and no NDE that I've ever heard of has talked about salamander flame beings on the sun. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I wonder if it's um, the mediums are in some way filtering what's coming through and it's their viewpoint of the world and their viewpoint of the universe and the afterlife that maybe subconsciously is affecting the information they give. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think if, if they're, um, if they really are in contact with spirits or even if they're not, actually, I could explain either way. Um, yeah. The information is certainly being filtered through the medium um, and their personality, their imagination. And as well as the fact that if there really is a spirit in the other world communicating these things, um, we don't really know, um, you know, what, if that spirit is the person they're claiming to be. So they're often saying, you know, Frederick Myers came through or, or some other SPR member who's concerned with working with a, his counterparts on, on the earthly side. Um, but then, you know, there's also claims of that spirits can be mischievous and they can impersonate and say that they're other people. So, so we don't really know, um, the truth of any of it. So, so at a certain stage, it's, it's just really speculation. And, and so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of puzzle out, like, um, taken it at face value, if we accept the evidence for these mediums, um, uh, for these sittings as being actual evidence of an afterlife, then what are we to make of all these other statements? And I think that's a, that's an important point because if we're going to accept the evidence, then, um, you know, at the time people like, like Oliver Lodge, they actually deleted descriptions of the afterlife from their books because they thought they were too frivolous or they thought that they undermined the evidence. But, um, if they're coming from the same mediums and ostensibly from the same spirits, then I think, you know, we should pay some attention to them and try to figure out what they actually meant. And going back to, you know, what we were saying earlier, um, if we want to accept them as, as descriptions from actual spirits, then I think the only way to explain them is that it is this idea that you're contributing to making you know, creating the afterlife as you go along. So you're overlaying what's there 
with stuff that's coming out of your imagination and the symbols that you're familiar with, even if you're doing it on a, you know, subconscious level as we do in dreams. So in fact, I think it's, um, a good model or a good um, analogy is, is lucid dreaming because during a lucid dream, you're, you know, you wake up in the dream, but you're still asleep and you're still in the dream. And when you wake up, when you, when you gain, you know, lucidity consciousness during the dream, it's not like all of a sudden everything disappears, but it's also not like all of a sudden you have full control of the environment and uh, you can change everything that's going on. Basically you're awake in the dream that you are already having. So if you're in, if you're in your child at home, suddenly you wake up and you're in that child at home, but you're not consciously creating that child at home. There's some, you know, script running in the background of your subconscious that's that's keeping that imagery there and keeping it stable. So that could be very much like what it's like in an afterlife, that there's these subconscious processes that basically um, you know, set the scenery, set the scenery for the for the stage, and then you participate in it. Maybe at a certain point, um, as you said earlier, either you don't need that scenery anymore, or maybe you're able to control it as you can in a lucid dream. If you, um, you know, if you're good at it, if you become good at a lucid dream, then you can get to the state where you can, you know, manifest people or change buildings or whatever. So that could be what it's like in the other world. And if that's the case, then we we do have, you know, an entire uh, a world history full of spirits in, in another realm with, uh, different kinds of backgrounds and histories and imaginations and beliefs and whatever. So there's no reason why, you know, there, there couldn't be an afterlife that reflects all of that. And I always go back to thinking, you know, think how different our lives are on this planet um, in this life, not only in the contemporary world. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in a, um, you know, in a house in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and, and it's totally different than where you are in the UK or, to what's going on in, in Ukraine or to, um, you know, a mountaintop in Switzerland or whatever. And so not only totally different experiences geographically, but historically, when you think that, you know, somebody in uh, Victorian England who, who went to, um, I don't know, somewhere in South America and somebody in South America who went to Victorian England, you know, a completely different, type of uh, consciousness in the way that they're going to experience each other's cultures. So given how diff different our experiences are on earth, there's no reason to think they should all be a, the same in another world. It's that idea of the mind dependence afterlife. Like we say, like you were saying in near death experiences, you might be creating what you experience there with your subconscious. And so these people in the afterlife who were coming through these mediums a hundred years ago, that's exactly why they're seeing this kind of ideal England. It's because they were exactly English mediums talking to English dead people, if that's what was right. actually happening. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. So, um, and even if they weren't, even if they're trying to convey something more rarefied and something more ineffable, um, that medium is, is you know, in, in their embodied earthly form with the brain that they're that they're given so it, it could also be that that medium is transmitting it in a way that's um you know makes sense to her so i think you did talk about one of the uh 20th century things was it the skull experiment what did you make of that yeah that's um that's a funny one um and there's not a lot of the, the main reason again that i looked at it was what kind of 
um, afterlife spirits in the other world portrayed to the researchers. There wasn't a lot of that. And actually, once again, the, um, the descriptions of the afterlife didn't really accompany the evidential sittings, which is another interesting issue that, that also reflects what happened in the Victorian and Edwardian stuff. Um, as far as the evidential aspect of it goes, I really, I'm at a loss because, you know, they, some of it sounds really amazing. Um, I, I spoke to David Fontana about it many years ago in London and, you know, I asked him about it and I, there, there was, you know, there are things about it that you say, wow, that's amazing. And, and look at all these people that they're convincing. They had a NASA scientist and a magician and all these skeptics, um, but then there are things like they had to end the experiments because uh, um, some malevolent being with a crystalline time probe was interfering with them. And it just starts sounding, you know, too science fictional for, for me. It reaches my, my boggle threshold. Um, but, you know, when I talked to David Fontana about it, he said um, he agreed. He's, you know, it, it sounds it sounds kind of absurd and it sounds, you know, odd and fictional, but he said he also can't deny the fact that, you know, a pinpoint of light went speeding around the room and passed through solid, solid objects, including his hand. He could feel it, you know, go through the top of his hand and out the bottom. Um, and then he saw flowers blooming under a glass dome, like inches from his face and just these things that he just, he couldn't explain. Um, but then uh, Alan Gold, who's a Society for Psychical Research um, Luminary, who's just written a new book on um, the heyday of mediumship, which which will be a great book. Um, you know, he's not at all convinced that that it wasn't just a, a total hoax. So evidently, I have no idea about the, the skull experiments. And same with a lot of the other stuff, you know, um, Gary Schwartz's experiments with, with mediumship. And um, it's um, it's intriguing to me, but a lot of it is is also difficult for me to swallow. I've seen the photographs that they say came from those sealed uh, camera reels and right. there's some videos as well. And they're, they're very intriguing, you know, and you look at it and you think, no, that, they're saying that this roll of film was completely sealed up in, in a locked box and unexposed. And then they right. got it out and they had it treated. They, you know, got the pictures developed and, it's just uh, it's weird. They, I think they did. They have something from Edison where he drew some little device. Yeah, yeah, and I think they, I think they even took those boxes to straight to Kodak without unsealing them and had the people at Kodak open the box and you know all these um, you know precautions like that. And yeah, and they showed like colorful landscapes with pyramids and things like that. Um, so who knows? I, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one. Yeah, but yeah. to me, the, the best evidence comes from NDEs, as I said, and also from the, the children who remember past lives. I think, um, and the interesting thing about that is uh, looking at uh, all the descriptions of the afterlife from all of these phenomena. The the ones that are most similar, um, which is the intermission memories and the NDEs, um, are also the the I think the best scientific evidence, the most compelling. Um, evidence that there is, whereas mediumship and then past life hypnosis, which I think have the least convincing evidence from, you know, a strictly scientific standpoint, they have the most amount of, you know, extraneous descriptions and um, afterlife worlds that are bureaucratic and have hierarchies of, of beings and uh, 
Um, I think I said in the book, it reminded me of, um, you know, like a cruise ship or, or, a, um, you know, a, a assisted living for, for elderly people where they, they kind of come on gang, let's, let's go and, you know, have us play games or it's, it's all a bit childish. So, um, and, and a little hard to swallow for me because of that. And, and just the, the way it's so systematized as well. It's like this bureaucracy that, that people are running this show and, and has all these, it's like school and government offices. And whereas the, uh, children remember past lives in the NDs. They don't really talk about anything like that. It's a much more spiritual, sort of abstract, um, ineffable, transcendent sort of experience. Much less physical, you know. The book we've been talking about is The Next World, Extraordinary Experiences of the Afterlife, which is really interesting. And it, I love the way you've brought these different areas together, like mediumship and near-death experiences and the reincarnation and do you have plans for another book i do yeah um i'm working on the historical anthology of near-death experiences which is uh just what it says it's going to be um, you know there's no analysis or or uh you know the only thing it's going to be is just accounts of ndes going back to ancient mesopotamia to probably the 1950s or 60s um and yeah, just from all parts of the world. And each one's going to just have a sort of short introduction about, um, you know, the context where it's from and uh, the person who had the NDE and, you know, what their religion might have been or whatever. But for the most part, it's just um, just a way to sort of read the, um, the history of NDEs from around the world. So that's the, that's the next one. Um, and then I'm also at some point going to put out... Um, we're going to write uh, new death experiences in, in ancient Greece and Rome, but that's kind of further down, <laughs> further down the path. And did you work with DJ Kadajian on his book? That's right. Yeah. Uh, DJ Kadajian's book on um, the crossover experience, it's called. And that's uh, yeah, that's an interesting book. He, um, he went through lots and lots of NDEs and, and he wanted to find um the most consistent kinds of similarities between them to try to put together a, you know, a model of a quintessential NDE. But of course that's problematic given all the stuff that we've talked about. So, so my role in that was basically to look at the accounts that he found and relate them to the historical and cross-cultural accounts and, and try to, um, you know, understand them in, in different ways and, and figure out you know, what exactly is cultural and what exactly isn't. So, yeah. And then um, Pim Van Lamo contributed to that as well. So I haven't actually seen the, the completed book yet, but thanks for mentioning that. And do you have a website where can, people can contact you? I do, yeah. It's uh, just gregoryshushan.com. Um, and I should also mention uh, the new book is published by uh, White Crow, which is whitecrowbooks.com. Um, but I'm also have just started a new imprint with White Crow called uh, Afterworlds Press, which I'm, I'm the editor of. So this is an exciting new thing because I get to find books that interest me in this area and either um, reprint them or print them for the first time. So for example, um, the first book, which is going to be out soon, it's a reprint of a 1950s book by a Swedish anthropologist named Aka Holtkrantz. And it's called the uh, North American Indian Orpheus Tradition. And that's basically about... Um, 
afterlife journey myths of different Native American people and uh, how they interacted with their afterlife beliefs and shamanism and, interestingly enough, near-death experiences because this is, you know, 20-something years before Raymond Moody's book on NDEs, but Huldkrantz was basically identifying um, that NDEs were a separate type of phenomena and was, you know, fascinated. He highlighted the fact that NDEs are contributing to afterlife beliefs in um, these different Native American cultures. So that's going to be the first book. The, uh, another one uh, coming up is by uh, a Japanese scholar of reincarnation, um, Okado Masayuki. And his book is going to be about um, reincarnation cases in Japan going back to you know ancient Japan up to the to the present with cases that he himself has investigated. Um, and then another one that we we've, we just have is uh, a book by Eileen Garrett, the famous medium, and she um, she claimed to have well I shouldn't say she claimed to have but she actually. Um, had these experiences in which uh, she, one of her communicators claimed to have been Lucifer. And he uh, communicated to her all these different kinds of, um, first of all, in, in a sort of challenging way, he, he was, um, you know, having her question her life and her ideas and her philosophy in, a, in a, an almost sort of playful, bantering way. Um, but then he also... Uh, transmitted like this compendium of guidance for living kind of thing, which is also going to be in the book. And this is a really interesting thing because not only is it um, uh, this kind of historical artifact, because it was written, goes back to when she was growing up in the 1910s, all the way up to, to the later areas of her life. Um, she was getting these kind of images and visions and communications from this supposed Lucifer figure who she called the noble stranger. Um, so it has this historical element. It also has this psychological development um, element to it because she's constantly questioning whether this um, entity is real. And if he is, if he is who he say he is, who he says he is, or if it's all coming from her own mind. So it's a, it's a really interesting kind of book. And, and it's exciting because this, these papers have been sitting in the parapsychological parapsychological foundation archives for, for decades. And so now we're finally going to bring this into print. Well, thanks a lot for coming back onto the podcast. It's been so good to talk to you and your book is really interesting. I advise everybody out there to come and buy it because it's a great read. Great. Thank you, Simon. And that was an interview with Gregory Shushan, PhD, about his book, The Next World, Extraordinary Experiences of the Afterlife. And a great way to support the podcast is to sign up on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash podcast. Or click on the button on my homepage at pastlifeshypnosis.co.uk. This is the free one-hour version of the episode. The extended episode is an hour and 17 minutes. If you join the $2 a month tier, you get an extended episode every month. And if you join the $5 a month tier, you'll have access to an extended episode every week and the back catalogue of extended episodes. Also, if you're a patron, you get a 25% discount when you book a past life regression session with me. And please check out my other podcast, it's called The Alien UFO Podcast, and I release new episodes every Monday, and you can find that on almost every podcast app. My Instagram is The Past Lives Podcast, with an underscore between each word, and on Twitter I am at Simon G. Bowne. And there is a Past Lives Podcast Facebook group. If you'd like to join, you'd be very welcome. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, or via your favourite podcast app to make sure that you don't miss out on any episodes. And thanks for listening.